Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello everyone, my name is Renee Mandervelle and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. After a few months of hiatus, we have recently published a podcast with Professor Yakubina Arch on the coastal shipping of Tokugawa, Japan, which is available on our Spotify and on the Appraising Risk website, so if you haven't listened, go check it out. Today, I am lucky to be joined by Dr. Lisa Shipper, an Environmental Social Science Research Fellow at the Environmental Change Institute, ECI, at the University of Oxford, whose research explores interlinkages between climate change and human development. Dr. Shipper's research seeks to address the question of whether fair and just development is possible in a changing climate. She focuses on what causes people to be vulnerable to climate change in developing countries, as well as the barriers and facilitators to climate change adaptation, giving particular attention to sociocultural dimensions of vulnerability, such as gender, culture, religion, and structural-related issues of power, justice, and equity. Dr. Shipper holds a Bachelor of Science degree from Brown University, a Master's of Science degree in Environment and Development from the University of East Anglia, and a PhD in Development Studies, also obtained at University of East Anglia. She completed her doctoral thesis entitled Adaptation to Climate Change, a Development Perspective in 2004, and thereafter obtained a postdoctoral fellowship at the International Water Management Institute in Colombo, Sri Lanka. As of this year, 2021, Dr. Shipper completed her postgraduate certificate in teaching and learning in higher education from Oxford University. She is also heavily involved with various extracurricular initiatives and contributes tirelessly to editing and co-editing volumes on development and equality. Since this past March, Dr. Shipper has worked with the ECI's research services to examine equality, diversity, and inclusion in research funding. She is currently a coordinating lead author of Chapter 18 of the Working Group 2 Contribution to the Sixth Assessment Report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, and has also worked as a lead author and editor on multiple special and assessment reports regarding climate change adaptation. She has been a research associate with the Overseas Development Institute in London and is one of the founding associate editors and current co-editor of the Journal of Climate and Development. She sits on editorial boards of the journal's World Development Perspective, published by the Netherlands-based publishing company Elsevier, and is also an associate editor of Mitigation and Adaptation Strategies for Global Change, which is published by Springer. So, without further ado, Dr. Shipper, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to speak with us, and congratulations on behalf of myself and the entire IOWC team on obtaining your recent postgraduate certificate in higher education. Thank you. That was a good experience to do. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know every time we interview people, it, it's a bit humbling when you go over all their accomplishments and a list form like that, but um, anyway, so I guess... Now, just to snowball off of that, um, we'd like you to introduce your research. How do you become inspired in uh, vulnerabilities of people, your academic journey, as well as um, maybe elaborate on the importance of study, studying vulnerabilities in relation to climate change? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, well, so thank you also for having me. I think it's really fun to, to be here. I'm, uh, I guess I sort of, I don't know if I, really thought that, that was looking at adaptation and vulnerability to climate change is what I would end up doing. I mean, I started off, 
I already knew when I went to do my undergraduate that I wanted to look at environmental issues because my father was an energy specialist and he looked at um, energy efficiency in housing and, and eventually also in transport. And so I sort of had that in my system that environment was was the most thing, the most important thing to protect. And if I ever asked him to explain what he did, uh, he would say, my job is saving the world. And so I think I came to thinking about sort of <laughs> my future as like, I have to be part of this protecting the world. And I did my undergraduate, as you said, at Brown, where the attitude about environment at that time was very much like a very protect the environment and kind of keep people out. And so I, I would definitely say that I came out of that degree feeling like people were destroying the world and people were bad and we need to kind of just keep conserve and protect the environment and so when I went to uh, after I finished my my degree I had the chance to work at the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Secretariat so the UN FCCC in Bonn and at that time it was just a very small group of people still I mean climate change wasn't a big thing it was is 1998. So people were just sort of starting to realize that this was a policy issue. Uh, the Kyoto Protocol had just been uh, agreed at the end of 1997, and I came to the to the the Secretariat on the day that it opened for for ratification. So I remember that very first day I went into the office of the executive secretary and they had like a, a drink and say, "Yay, today, you know, how many instruments of ratification have been submitted?" and and so it was kind of an, an early you know, time and I was lucky enough to be part of both that policy discussion and also then having already this kind of link with environment. But I think it became clear to me in that job that there was a big difference between the kind of information that was available in developed countries. So through in the UN Framework Convention language, that's the Annex One countries, the ones who had the original commitments that they had to reduce their greenhouse gases to below 1990 levels, um, and or to, yeah, and uh, and developing countries. And my job in this consultancy was to figure out alternative data that could be used to compare what they call the activity data. So how much. Um, you know, if we have, if we know that there's, for example, in New Zealand, this many, um, you know, this much methane emissions, that is based on the calculation that there are these, this many sheep and this many, this many, you know, livestock, and that that then that you use this emission factor to say, well, for each of these animals, these, this is what, you know, how you can convert how much emissions it has, and so. It's, you know, at that time, nobody was really looking at this data. There was very, very little available. And, um, and I thought, well, how if developed countries can't even check and we can't find any way to double check, how would developing countries ever be able to do this? Because, you know, it's just completely different institutions and so on. So that led me to apply for a master's in development and environment. I wasn't 100% ready to go for just development at that point. So, so my, my, um, and I chose UEA, University of East Anglia, because of the strong climate change focus at the time, and still, but um, but it was one of the few places that really looked at climate change. And in the School of Development Studies, there was quite a lot of interest also. So it was a, it was a good place to be. And then eventually I stayed uh, for my PhD there. But I think what, what hit me when I arrived at 
UEA in one of the first lectures that we had was we saw, uh, and I think I'm not the only one, but certainly I was totally, I think my, my this kind of US uh, influence attitude about environment and protect the environment and keep the people out was really knocked over. We watched a documentary based on uh, James Fairhead and Melissa Leach's work on misreading the African landscape. So th where they went out um, to Guinea and, and looked at what they thought was deforestation. And it turned out after interviewing people that actually this was about reforestation. There hadn't been forest in these places before. And it was like, I don't know, there's something about that, like, oh, people haven't been destroying, actually people are making things, you know, adding trees here. So that, that kind of, that definitely inspired me to think twice about, you know, it's maybe protecting the environment, maybe people aren't so bad after all. Uh, and so now, I mean, my work really is focused on human dimensions of climate and people, and particularly, I think that was why when I became interested in, in understanding sort of the other side, the developing country side, which is more the adaptation side, like how to developing countries deal with the impacts of climate change. Uh, but it also, was also clear to me that vulnerability is, is kind of the big question. And so in my PhD, which was on adaptation and development, my conclusion was that actually we need to focus on vulnerability and the drivers of vulnerability. And I feel a little bit like a broken record because <laughs> I still say that um, because I think we've still we're putting too much um, hope maybe or it's adaptation has become so technocratic it's become sort of institutionalized it's become this tick box in many ways and a lot of the initiatives that are supposed to be helping people adapt aren't really getting at all at these underlying drivers of vulnerability and those are the things that I'm interested in the gender culture. Um, and, and that sort of thing, religious belief as part of that as well. So I think um, in some ways, I didn't understand that so well when I was working on my PhD, but also there wasn't that much evidence, like empirical evidence to support this. So in some ways, I feel like I've been doing the same thing and talking about the same things for a long time. But, but now, I mean, the pressure to do something about climate change is, is more severe, but I, yeah, I guess. So the other thing I would add to that is that what we now know, I mean, now the emphasis on finding solutions for climate change is there. And there's more and more research that emphasizes, you know, that climate change is causing lots of problems. Uh, and we, we can link climate with specific extreme events and so on. Uh, but what bothers me a little bit is that the conversation about how to address vulnerability has gotten lost a bit. It's still, you know, we've known for decades that bad development is making people vulnerable to climate change, just like it makes them vulnerable to natural hazards. That's not something new. I mean, that was, people were talking about that in the 70s. It's just that getting at those root causes of develop, sort of bad development, the unsustainable development is so complicated. It's, it's, it's and, and I think, I think that if we were to, to address those things, we would first of all make the make the world a better place for for so many people who are not at all having a good time now, whose well-being is, is very poor. Uh, but we would also address a lot of these issues that have to do with why we're worried about climate change, because we'd be addressing the issues of inequity. We've been addressing the issues of, of the drivers of vulnerability. Uh, and I think we could go probably not halfway, but I think we'd go go quite far if we were to 
to look at kind of prioritized development as the big solution for addressing climate change. Of course, then we have to have all the other stuff to, to get the greenhouse gas emissions down. But rather than thinking that we just have to redo everybody's ideas of, of life so that we can adapt to climate change, I think we need to say, well, how can we address these things that in some cases are very, very deeply rooted in, in you know, colonial histories and that sort of thing, but desperately need to be addressed, uh, regardless if we have climate change or not. So I suppose that's why I would say vulnerability is still incredibly important to look at. And uh, unfortunately, though, it gets a bit pushed out of the way because it seems, I guess it's, it frightens a lot of governments, probably also. For sure. I mean, a lot of money and a lot of resources have to go into protecting the most vulnerable. And, you know, let's be real here in a consumerist and capitalist society, you want to prioritize those that have money to fund into the government as opposed to those who don't. So it's a it's kind of a trap in a way. Um, so <clears throat> moving on to the next question. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, in reference to the 2021 publication of your article, Adaptation Interventions and Their Effect on Vulnerability in Developing Countries, you bring up the interesting point that environmental adaptation is designed in a way which assumes that the area to which it is applied will be peaceful um, or one that's not going to be stricken by conflict. Uh, do you mind maybe expanding on the consequences of this assumption when regions are in conflict? Um, and also maybe you could elaborate on conflicts that can emerge from adaptation paradigms, which lack sufficient contextual and historical understanding into the current situation of the areas in which they're being applied to. Yeah, so I mean, I think what's, what's one of the things that, and that's sort of relates to what I was saying earlier, one of the, the things that while we recognize that sort of um, the intersection of development issues and climate change impacts is, is super important to look at and to consider. One of the challenges is, is that we have to also prioritize, prioritize a little bit because not climate change impacts are not the biggest thing for all countries, right? So I was thinking about when I saw, I remember I saw, I think it was like a consulting um, announcement for, for a consultant uh, a job ad for somebody who was going to help in Afghanistan to help people, uh, to help the government write their uh, national adaptation program of action or something like that. I mean, this was a while ago. And I just thought, gosh, you know, it seems obviously, you know, if you could align your development priorities with, with climate change and ensure that you sort of, like I said, address these underlying vulnerabilities from the outset. But when you're in a situation where you're rebuilding a country, for example, um, would do, is climate change really the main, like how important is it to have a plan for adaptation when actually so much else is probably also lacking? And I guess we need to think about these things, certainly. We need to think about like, you know, you don't want to train or I don't know what what the what the kind of the way to rebuild the place, but you don't want to set up a huge agriculture, you know, set system where people are dependent on rain-fed agriculture, for example, as a way to help them rise out of, you know, to re recover from a big conflict when the area is probably going to be, or or the likelihood that the area will have problems with, with rainwater in the future. I mean, you, you know, you don't want to set people up for um, you know, worse situation, right? So you don't want to rebuild in a way that's going to. Um, make them maladapted. But at the same time, uh, you need to consider sort of what is it that 
what is it that that really kind of matters and how, what you know if people don't have enough to eat because there's conflict do you also need to think about famine or other kinds of things caused by climate change i think the point is just, it's more about how do you how do you um prioritize but then I guess the point is also that a lot of these projects assume that there's that everything is fine where you're so they come in and they implement them and there's an assumption that things are that things are okay and and as you point out in your second question I mean the issue is that often organizations will have money for a project so it might be a multilateral or bilateral organization they come in and they want to collaborate with they have to collaborate with some kind of government institution potentially some kind of other implementing groups that are local. Because of the way that these work, sometimes they, they have requirements that they have to have a certain, these organizations that they, they collaborate with have to have a certain status. Like they need to have some kind of organizational papers that say, okay, this is what, you know, how, what we do. And, and, um, and therefore they tend to collaborate with the same organizations over and over because they know that these organizations are there and they can quickly go through the paperwork and so on. But the problem is that then that by default that marginalizes these other groups who don't have this yet maybe and that the reason they might not have that has to do with the fact that they may not be sufficiently well structured or they they're lacking capacity to even know how to fill in these forms or how to apply for the kind of status that might be necessary. And so the, by, that means that they're already a little bit on the edge, right? And then by, by continuously not <laughs> getting to be, be, be part of projects, they continue to be, become more and more marginalized. Um, I mean, that's just an example, but there are other ways where you, you, know, you might come in and collaborate with a government organization. And they specifically don't want to work, collaborate with people who you know, are part of uh, groups that are politically marginalized on purpose. Or, or for cultural reasons or religious reasons. So, I mean, it's, I think the, the, the challenge is that it's not a neutral, you don't walk in with a project and it's a neutral setup and you, know, you kind of come in and do no harm. You have to be really careful. And that's partly in this, this paper we talked about sort of how do you identify when things are imbalanced and when you might come in and actually end up creating the new and or or um, escalating existing problems. Um, and that was why in sort of this idea of, of, well, maladaptation, but in fact, the real emphasis is that you create vulnerability or you, you make the vulnerability worse. Um, so yeah, I guess that's the point about conflict is that you, you have to just realize the different circumstances in each place. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I really liked when you were, I, I'm, I focused on uh, Southeast Asia when I was doing my master's and specifically Vietnam. So I really liked when you brought up um, the, the highland population, the indigenous highland population in Vietnam and the way that they've been impacted uh, by climate change. So when, when you said that, I definitely knew I wanted to ask this question about the different uh, inequalities that, and imbalances that are sometimes promoted or emphasized after adaptation. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to move on. This uh, is another question about maladaptation um, or uh, adaptation does, that doesn't necessarily go as planned. Uh, so you described three types of maladaptation, uh, infrastructural, institutional, and behavioral. So I guess it's kind of a bit of a case study that I'm asking now. Um, I'm curious about how you would break down 
the current crisis that is affecting Southeast Asia. So uh, whereby entire local economies, which were dependent on tourism and now are now lacking their primary source of economic income due to the travel restrictions that have been engendered uh, from the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so first of all, what kind of maladaptation would you describe this as? Uh, and how, based on previous research, uh, is it likely to be treated by local governments via Band-Aid solutions or Band-Aid adaptations? Um, and I guess I'll just ask another question and I can ask this again if you're going to try to handle this in chunks. Uh, could you maybe discuss how the prioritization of vaccination, vaccinating members of certain countries over others falls into maladaptation? And um, if you could maybe just go into maladaptation for our listeners while you're talking about this too. So that's a long question, but uh, let me know if you want me to break it up for you too. Yeah, sure. No. So I guess it's interesting. Maladaptation is a really useful concept. Uh, I would probably say that maladaptation is when adaptation goes wrong, but it goes wrong because you plan it wrong. There's, it's not, um, it doesn't go wrong just because circumstances fall into place that, that mean that it's not, not good. It's, what's important is because we have so many examples of adaptation that's planned poorly, just like we have uh, over, for decades examples of development planned poorly, um, we, maladaptation, it conveys this idea that you need to be really careful and you need to know the context that you get that you're implementing a project in um but i would also say maladaptation is very specifically when you plan adaptation and it goes wrong so in the case of tourism in southeast asia so a couple of thoughts about this the the I wouldn't say that tourism in itself is an adaptation. I say tourism is a livelihood strategy. And as you know, from Southeast Asia, it's both informal, you know, in the sense that there are lots of people who are able to benefit from the tourism industry in an informal, like, you know, you can be a tour guide and you could do this and you, you know, whatever, and set up little shops. And, and but then there can be also be informal where, you know, people are actually working or owning hotels or, or, you know, working in hotels or working in kind of tours as a tour guide or whatever um, in, in a company. And, and so I think I would say what's interesting about tourism and the way it's that the pandemic has affected it, um, and not just in Southeast Asia, but obviously all over the world, uh, is that it demonstrates how dependent people have become on something that is essentially very, very, um, it's, it's fragile. Uh, and, you know, I would say that the tourism industry is equally threatened by climate change measures and by not just like government measures, but also individuals, you know, there's lots of people who are signing up, not enough maybe, but there are lots of people signing up to these pledges that they're not gonna fly. So what does that mean for, you know, I don't know if you realize, but I think Sweden sends the most tourists to Thailand from any other country in the world. And it's like 400,000 people a year in the, you know, who come. And obviously, you know, if people can't travel there, that, that you know, what, what does that mean for, well, people aren't flying. And in the future, maybe people say, hey, I'm not going to fly anymore because, first of all, it's warmer in Sweden during the summer, so I don't really need to go to, to Southeast Asia. But also, 
um, because now I realize it's not good for the environment. And, and so that will also have impacts, right? So the pandemic is kind of like, the pandemic in some ways was like um, a magnifying glass on so many inequitable kind of structures that we have, uh, including healthcare systems. And, you know, like it, in, in the UK, it shone a very strong light on looking, you know, the, the difference between uh, how ethnic minorities were were being affected by the pandemic and and how um, uh, kind of white British people were being affected and obviously it's not just because a lot of people ethnic minorities are in frontline jobs but also because of the way that they're treated by the healthcare system and therefore have underlying conditions and other kinds of things that yeah so the pandemic similarly so shows us that you know tourism is something that's kind of fickle and it may not necessarily be so I, mean, I think the issue is with uh, it, it sort of is a demonstration that if we're going to have um, people very dependent on something, you know, you can't you, you need to have alternatives for them. And it's similarly, I think you could say similar things about uh, food aid, for example, or other kinds of programs. I mean, like there exists in India, for instance, very, very successful um, guarantee of certain amount of hours uh, or days of, of uh, employment every year right so and these things have been really successful but they're also like they are there and people are relying on them because there aren't that many alternatives and so uh it's a kind of welfare system but it's a welfare system you know you could you could almost think of tourism as a welfare system because it it, it provides for many people and if you're creative even if you don't have any other skills and you don't have a lot of you know money you can maybe come up with some creative way of of taking advantage of the of tourism um, so I guess that would I would say that it 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 has the same kind of sentiment as maladaptation in the sense that you know it, it when it falls apart it falls apart and it's it falls apart hard and there's not many alternatives. Um, but in terms of the the vaccination, um, I mean I guess I I wouldn't say that I wouldn't drop a connection with maladaptation explicitly except that it is something that's obviously creating huge inequities and. Um, it, it's totally, you know, it, it's another illustration of how uh, the developing world is last on the list in, you know, for, for BMs that kind of whatever you want to call it. I mean, obviously, get back to normal is ridiculous, but but to kind of overcome the pandemic um, in the sense. So, yeah. So, I mean, again, I would say if you if you think about maladaptation, it really has to be used specifically to talk about adaptation strategies. But the other thing that you can think about is externalities, um, because you know the things that will have implications elsewhere, things that are, are done in one place that have consequences elsewhere, um, and just like as we kind of here in in Western countries in Europe and North America and so on are, are recovering in, in a sense from the pandemic because we're able to be vaccinated and meet our relatives and so on. Um, many, many people are still waiting. And so just like that lag, it gets even more extreme. Like, you know, the pandemic has been so difficult and people are so kind of um, restricted, I guess. And then, you know, here we are like out and meeting people and so on. Um, so it, it just shows again the, the cleavage, I guess, between developed and developing world. For sure. And I, I suppose going back to the uh, vaccination uh, difference between developing and developed countries, um, it must just completely exacerbate vulnerabilities that already exist within communities. You know, I mean, uh, we like there are so many statistics about 
domestic abuse and households, for example, that have like increased during the pandemic. And, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't change when you're in a developing country. There are still those statistics and those statistics still stay up or rise when stressful situations are happening. It's as if sometimes people in the developed world um, assume that we kind of own mental health and we're the only ones who suffer from mental health. And when there are these huge disasters that are happening um, in developing countries, people forget to ask, well, how is the mental health of these people? How are they, how is their well-being? Uh, so just you talking about the lag really made me think about that because mm. I was thinking about, um, I guess, just the way that we were doing as a society when we were in lockdown, et cetera. Um, okay, so the next question I'm going to ask is, uh, in your forthcoming article, Climate Change Research and the Search for Solutions, you speak to the overbearing weight that natural sciences have over climate change compared to the more qualitative forms of knowledge, including Indigenous knowledge, uh, in the publication of important climate change reports, such as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC special report, which you're currently working with. Um, I am first of all curious about how you came to notice this. Uh, was it while you were working with the IPCC or prior, if you were reading the reports, if you'd noticed this. Um, and moreover, I'm curious about whether the political motivations behind qualitative reductionism could also be encompassed under this kind of fetishization of economic growth that you had mentioned. So uh, whereby straightforward sciences and snappy solutions are promoted to maintain a status quo in terms of human consumption patterns. Uh, which reduce panic and pessimistic views on the future and provide by providing simple solutions to complex problems, uh, which would, I guess, ease wariness of climate change in westernized societies uh, that are less affected by climate change. So they don't notice them as much and they think that it's just an easier solution. Um, and I guess maybe just elaborate on this question, go in any which direction you'd like with this question. And um, if you could maybe just elaborate on the long-term effects or the current effects of the impacts of simplification of data on regions and peoples who experience increased vulnerability to climate change. Yeah, thanks. I should probably just say that I hope this article is going to be forthcoming, <laughs> still working in the review process. But the, I mean, I could say that this came, the, the article was, was or, or the, the frustration, uh, the article is the, the outcome of frustration uh, that uh, my co-authors and I felt during something that we were part of that I don't really want to mention what it is, but it was a kind of a global process of, of um, trying to link science with policy. And we've, we felt that what we were asked to do was basically endorse a bunch of numbers <laughs> and say, these numbers are science. And here you go, policymakers, here are the numbers. But what are policymakers supposed to do with just a bunch of numbers? And I think the point was that if you don't have the qualitative, the descriptive that goes along with it, or or that is in, in addition to it, then how can you actually give any kind of context for the decision maker? Um, and we, I think this has this has come from, I mean, of course. I started, as you mentioned already, I mean, I started my career with a degree and a Bachelor of Science. Um, I would say <laughs> just to, that was because I, I, you know, I'm half Swedish, half US, and I went to a French school. So I had a lot of languages, Spanish as well. And I think I felt was not very confident in my English writing. So it was a science <laughs> degree. It was much easier for me than, than um, a, a degree that required a lot of reading and a lot of writing. Um, 
in any of those languages. Um, so that was kind of, but, but, um, but I also think that there was a sense that a science degree, a Bachelor of Science was better than a Bachelor of Arts. And I'm not sure where that came from, but I, I, I think, you know, there has, over the course of my career, I realized, you know, that a social scientist, when I came to my postdoc at the International Water Management Institute in Colombo, they gave me like an HR form at the beginning and it was like, fill in, um, you know, fill in your discipline, hydrologist, agronomer, economist, uh, engineer. I can't remember what the other, but it was all like, uh, except, well, economists, but the others were all like natural science uh, disciplines. And then it was one box, social scientists. And I was like, what? What's this? You know, social scientists lump us all together. So I, I remember I crossed it off and I wrote my, my own little box that development studies. But, and, you know, I started to feel more and more like there was some kind of, you know, it's, it's these specific disciplines that matter and they contribute to the knowledge. And then the social sciences, it's like, it's an additional task or is it it's somehow supposed to be like the bridge between the the knowledge the science and like policy and decision making and more and more frustrated that qualitative information didn't seem like it mattered enough for like big discoveries or or you know making the points about kind of what's happening um so it's certainly something that has come over the course of my career as as you know definitely with a you know phd in a very qualitative social science but i I think the IPCC is particularly a frustrating experience in that it is kind of put it a bit, a little bit of a straitjacket for itself. In that, this when we first when the IPCC was first started, the the uh, what we didn't know was was the climate changing. I mean, the purpose of the IPCC was to identify whether the climate was changing and where and how. And it's only in the last kind of two assessment cycles that really focus seriously on solutions and trying to say, well, how do we resolve this problem? Because it's really only now that we have sufficient evidence that, you know, we already see the climate is changing. And I think, you know, the first assessment report and the second assessment report was like, well, we can see that CO2 concentrations are rising, but we can't, there wasn't any like actual evidence, you know, people, people didn't know what was happening. Um, and so, and people didn't feel it in the same way, right? So, so now there's focus on solutions and that has been, um, I mean, as we argue that, that that's kind of driving us to then say quickly, quickly, we need to get something out there. Let's be driven by the numbers and let's be kind of, you know, one thing that I could say related to vulnerability is very sort of for me, very symbolic of this problem is this idea of doing a vulnerability map. So for example, imagine we do a map of the Indian Ocean kind of, all the countries and say, well, how do we map vulnerability? Where is the vulnerability? But the thing is, the vulnerability, as we, you know, within one village or one, you know, household, there are differences in the vulnerability. And so, so to start kind of making these kind of maps, you have to come up with average numbers to say, well, in this part, you know, say in Seychelles, this is vulnerability. These, you know, it's going to get red because it's people are very vulnerable. But it, it doesn't make sense in the sense that part of the problem with vulnerability and addressing vulnerability is, as we said earlier in, the, in, you know, in the podcast, the differences between people that the power differences and the opportunities that, that people have and those things actually contribute to vulnerability. So it's, it's that uh, differentiated, um, the differentiated circumstances and that dynamic 
in a specific location that is also a driver of vulnerability. So if you were to say that an average, this place has, you know, whatever this number of vulnerability, it doesn't, it doesn't give you a sense of that, the complicated the stuff that's really difficult to get uh, to, to address. And that's what we need to address. And, and just the, this to me is kind of an illustration of why we need the descriptive, the qualitative information to, uh, to support decision makers, to, to not just to say, okay, we're going to channel all of our money to, you know, Tanzania, um, Madagascar, you know, Indonesia, based on some kind of vulnerability index, rather than saying, okay, we're going to focus on the communities where gender inequality is really significant and, it, and affecting vulnerability, or we're going to want to focus our money on the places where um, there's a very, very powerful political elite that is, you know, marginalizing certain hill tribes, for example. So, I mean, I just, I think that's, that's the problem is that we don't, when we don't get into that kind of qualitative information, then it, it doesn't really matter that, you know, Seychelles scores higher than uh, Madagascar, for example, but, but governments make decisions about their money based on these kinds of indicators, right? So I think this is the kind of the crux of what the issue is. But, but then the other problem is also that who there's some um, equality issues in terms of who gets, you know, it's men, STEM subjects, more men in STEM subjects. And there's not necessarily a huge amount of overrepresentation of women in there's more gender equality in some social sciences. But I think, you know, you have to then you start unpacking like whose voices are actually getting to even influence the, the discussion. Um, so there is there. That's why I, thought, I think we need to put emphasis on this difference between the natural sciences and the social sciences, but also we need to collaborate better and we don't do that very well. So uh, that's Yeah, that's actually a perfect segue into my next question. Um, talking about whose voices are heard more and whose voices are prioritized. Um, in your article, uh, Equity and Climate Scholarship, you bring up the super important issue of the frequent exclusion of female voices and the voices of the global south, particularly voices from African countries, uh, from the academic, I suppose, echo chamber. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to this a bit more, uh, its ultimate impact of preserving, I guess, historically westernized and patriarchally based standards as, of academia and its impact of subverting the accomplishments of those who already experience significant vulnerabilities to social, economic, political, and environmental risks. So uh, I guess the vast exclusion of women of color from academic discussion, uh, et cetera. Yeah, so, I mean, I would just add that I'm also working in this project on equality, diversity, and inclusion and research funding at Oxford specifically, which is um, identifying, or I should say, reinforcing the uh, challenging nature of academia. But what's what's coming out is that there really are these leaky pipes where people, especially women, especially people of minorities, um, and um, tend to fall out for a number of different reasons that I don't think I really need to go into. But but I mean, it's, it's, we. We know that there's an imbalance in terms of who actually makes it through with the whole kind of that, that race towards um, being a professor. And I, I understand also that across disciplines, this varies as well, because depending on who you are, like all disciplines have different cultures of publishing. And of course, publications are kind of the currency, right? So if you have enough publications, then, you know, you, you 
you that's kind of what, what you get based judged on and if you have a lot of publications you will probably have that because you've had a lot of research funding you've been able to hire people to work with you and you've had projects so you publish uh, but then you you get the money because you published. So if you don't have publications, you can't get the money, and then you can't publish. And it's kind of this vicious cycle. It's it's and it's actually really true. But I think what's what's frustrating is to see sort of uh, that then you have these things like this Reuters hot list of one thousand influencer or kind of like climate research influencers, uh, which was what we reacted to in that article. I mean, the, the editorial, and I think the, what we're frustrated us about this was we know that there's such an imbalance already. It's documented. It's research. We know that you know the Western white men are the ones who are getting kind of whose voices are getting heard the most. Why do they then have to go and? <laughs> and create this list of 1000 scholars of which only 111 are from and based in well are based in developing countries and from developing countries there were a couple of developing country scholars based in western countries that i didn't include in that list um, because i think you have to keep in mind the challenging sort of the limitations that that our people have based at a university in a developing country for example the lack of library access and, and in, poor internet power cuts things like that. Um, and, and so, and of that, there were um, also very limited number of women. So, I mean, how is it possible that this, you know, we have this, why do they then make this list that basically says, we're going to make all these people stars. Oh, but it's just a minority of people from developing countries and a minority of them are women. And it just kind of, it, you know, it's, it's like, um, it, it sort of, uh, it was almost like on purpose trying to highlight that, you know, these people are great, but hang on though. I mean, it's not fair because all these challenges are in the way um, for, for women and for <laughs> scholars in developing countries. And so it's a very uneven playing field. And I think that, that it hit, it, I mean, that hit home with a lot of people in a, in a negative way. So there was also a fantastic piece in the conversation that was written by some colleagues from South Africa about kind of why this was not a good list to make. But but I think, yeah, I mean, the standards of academia um, are, are, I think what, what we don't value sufficiently is interaction with decision makers, interaction with, with um, kind of, you know, field work, field access to people and going out and talking to people. And especially in climate change research, it's important to know the perception of climate change and what, what are people actually doing, but also what are governments willing to, to, to act on. Uh, and so, of course, none of that was was, you know, you, you don't get brownie points for going to a government meeting every week if, you know, if it's not going to result in a publication, basically. Uh, but it will give you a good insight and it might even help educate the government. So, you, you know, it's a, it could potentially be a win win. It's just that it doesn't come out as a as this sort of academic structure. It doesn't fit into that formula. For sure. And also just the fact that um, people who observe, those who observe and don't live the experience are getting their voices heard and prioritized over those who live the experience. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I think, I mean, it goes back to the social natural science divide as well, because I think that social scientists do often want to, qualitative social scientists often would do some kind of field work or have some sort of interaction 
um, in a way with people <laughs> and not just sit with computers. Uh, but if the natural sciences are getting prioritized, then what does that mean for places that don't have big computers that can run models, that don't have reliable internet, that don't, you know, I mean, it again, it kind of creates that, that imbalance between developed and developing countries. So it, it or it reinforces rather. Um, yeah. So I think it's, uh, but I guess I would say also that these issues are, um, they're all linked, right? They're not totally independent. So that whose voices count in terms, who gets research funding, who gets to publish and who gets uh, listened to will influence the way that we also understand what needs to be done in terms of climate change action. And so if the people who are getting listened to are primarily natural scientists from developed countries, that will deprioritize issues around adaptation and vulnerability just because those are things, although their adaptation is certainly important in the West as well, it's, it's vulnerability issues are primarily um, things that we think about in the context of poor, poor communities. Um, so, and, and um, yeah. All right, well, thank you so much, Dr. Schiffer. Um, for answering all of these questions so thoroughly, um, for also, I suppose, challenging certain status quos as it relates to the comparison of good data versus bad data uh, in relation to climate change related publications. Um, and also just in general for your research, which promotes, promotes a more thorough understanding into the vulnerabilities which exist in our world and which we need to uh, tend to with more sustainable environmental, economic and sociopolitical solutions as opposed to kind of short-term adaptation strategies. So thank you so much for all of that. Uh, thank you also to Dr. Archisman Chowdhury for producing this podcast episode. Uh, and thank you to you, our listeners, uh, for downloading, tuning in, and supporting us throughout this challenging, albeit interesting year for the IOWC academic community. So once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world. 